When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. And it's the Fountain of Truth about aging. Now, you may think that uh, pills, drugs, uh, this is the way that we are going to be dealing with our age-related diseases. But, oh, no, oh, no, we're going to also be looking at exercise at diet, at, you know, even technology and interventions for a lot of reasons, curative, right, prevention, and not just for the things that you might think about, like heart disease and so on, but even for Alzheimer's, even for our cognitive abilities. And this is what we are going to dive into today. Now, for those of you who are not aware of what's going on in the National Institute on Aging and the National Institute on Health, that funds a great deal of this observation and these trials. Let me explain. There has been a shift. There is no doubt about it. You are going to see in my blog uh, two blogs that you should take a look at. One is about clinical trials, how the how geroscientists actually work um, to test the kind of drugs that you get. But in that article, which goes through the phases of these clinical trials and how it starts on animal testing, which we all know about, and then goes on to humans, you'll also see that of the several hundred trials that are going on with regard to drugs and, let's say, Alzheimer's, about 200 of them have nothing to do with drugs. They have to do with whether or not your social dancing is going to make a difference in your life. They have whether or not your caregiver is stressed out and how to use mindfulness, all the things you read about in the magazines. Now, there's some real hard science behind this, and there's some real fluff. And how do you know the difference? Well, that's really what all of this is about today. And what we're going to be speaking, uh, who we're going to be speaking to is the person who's really at the head of making a lot of these decisions, along with other groups and, and teams. And, you know, when we, when we look at this, we know we're doing some of these things. And Dr. Christina McLinden, uh, is going to explain to us how we can test through our government programs. What's working? What isn't working? What is fluff? A lot of this stuff is regulated. Some people will say it's overregulated. And then there's other things that aren't regulated at all. So what should you be doing for your better health that is not drug or pill oriented? Tough question. And there's a lot of people working to try to get answers. So thank you so much, Dr. McLinden, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So let's set the stage first. Um, these are what, what the NIA calls non-pharmaceutical trials, right? And some of them have to do with exercise and food and so on. Give, give us a general idea of how, if you can, because they're very diverse, of how these trials are conducted. What are you looking for? Sure. So the types of trials that we're looking at really run the gamut of a number of different topics, and that's part of what makes my work so exciting. Um, you know, we're looking at diet, exercise, cognitive training, brain stimulation, and combinations of all of these. Um, so it really runs the gamut. But in terms of how they're constructed, you know, it's a little bit different than a drug trial. It's a little bit more uh, of a struggle to develop a placebo group to have proper comparisons. But it's something that um, that we're really focused on and, and able to do. And 
can tell you more about that if you're interested. Well, I am. Let's unpack one of the trials. I know that you mentioned the pointer trial, but you could pick anyone. Uh, if you want to use pointer, that would be great. And how is it done? Exactly what would one discover if they were a volunteer and part of this trial? Um, let's see. So for example, um, one of the trials I'd like to highlight is mind diet. And the, the reason I want to highlight it is because it's a component in several multimodal lifestyle interventions, including U.S. Pointer. And so mind diet is focused on the Mediterranean and DASH diets. And so the Mediterranean has, um, you know, heart healthy fats and the DASH diet is known to be heart healthy and can reverse cardiovascular issues. It's uh, low in sodium. And so the combination of these two diets comprises the mind diet. And so it's a trial focused on finding people who have poor eating habits and thus are perhaps more at risk for developing cognitive decline and dementia. And so it's focused on the prevention angle and how the trial is constructed is so they really think that the mind diet itself and not other factors of dietary change are really the important component here. And so the experimental group, the group that we're expecting to see change in that we're trying to intervene with, um, they're having access to the mind diet and receiving food and things like that to, to help with uh, their dietary change. And the control group in that case is looking at caloric restriction. So con consuming fewer calories and focused on general healthy eating. And the idea behind non-farm trials and designing them in a way where you can determine what's really having an effect is, um, I say, you try to find the part that's the secret sauce. So what is the thing that you really think is making the difference? So if it's exercise and you think it's aerobic exercise that's really making the difference, then you could have a stretching control group. You try to equate as many of the things that could be having an impact that aren't the the secret sauce, the item of interest, and you try to make it as similar as possible to the experimental group. And that way you can walk away saying, we know it's the mind diet. It's not just because they ate less or they changed some feature. We know it's the mind diet, or we know it's aerobic exercise at this amount. And you walk away knowing a lot more by having a well-designed trial. So, you know, let me bring this down to what we're doing. Uh, we're doing in my own life and in our family and what my listeners and my readers are doing. The Mediterranean diet is very well known. Um, a lot of people who are vegan are able to do this. People who are pescatarians like me can do it. And then the DASH diet is something I do because I, I sodium somehow is not great for me. So, so we all, we're all doing some part of it. My husband does keto. I, I noticed that one of your trials has to do with keto and what, and what the effect is there. But what we're doing is we're kind of groping in the dark. You know, we're picking, we're choosing, we're reading an article. Sometimes I'm writing the article. So let's go back to the NIA and these real trials with real scientists working with real people. Uh, at what point, how long does it take to, to say, gee whiz, it's the Mediterranean diet. It's not caloric restriction, which by the way, just FYI, a little plug, I just did and published an article on fasting. A lot of it is based on Dr. Mm -hmm. Nir Barzillai's new book called Age Later. And um, how to do intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, which seems to be the only thing that really makes you you live longer. Whether you're happy living it without cheesecake is another story, but but you, <laughs> but you live longer. So you're doing all this good stuff. How long does it take for you to 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 say, oh, it's this diet, not that diet? And once you do, once you do that, does that filter down to physicians, to the press, to the public? That's 
the, where the rubber meets the road. So tell us about that, Dr. Lind- McClendon. Yeah, so there are, science is really built on multiple layers of evidence. And so one of the helpful ways to start off in determining what diets might be able to make a difference here is by looking at longitudinal studies and epidemiological research. So you take a large group of people and you follow them for a while and just see what happens. And so um, we recently had um, we recently had a, a trial that came or a study that came out that was looking at the Chicago Health and Aging Project and the Memory and Aging Project. And together they pooled roughly um, a little like a little over 2000 people. Wow. And using that, they looked at a number of different um, healthy lifestyle factors. And one of them was adherence to the mind and dash diets, as well as um, regulating your alcohol consumption, smoking cessation, physical activity. And they found that people who engaged in, you know, more in certain degrees of lifestyle changes, you know, two to three, or if they engaged in more, that that was directly related to, um, to ha- their outcomes. And so you start off with this large scale epidemiological work, and then you can, then you design trials to try to target that down further. As far as, so once you start having clinical trials where you're actually doing a control group comparison and you're, you're not just looking at what do people naturally do, but actually changing that behavior and seeing what that outcome is. Once you reach the the clinical trials phase, um, you know, honestly, it can take years. Um, the mind diet is currently, um, it, it's fully enrolled and people are engaged in, uh, the intervention. Now we're hoping to get a readout, uh, in the next few years, but it, it takes five, six years to get a controlled trial. And usually that's looking at one piece of the puzzle. In this case, it's looking at prevention. Some of the other dietary interventions that we have, like with ketogenic is looking at how it can, people who are already experiencing a decline, how can you slow that decline? So when you do these trials, um, it's important to do, but often you'll get a readout on, you know, one particular piece of the puzzle. And you will be able to, you know, with a large scale, well-controlled trial, create some health messaging um, that can be released to the public and um, hopefully will be taken up by physicians and recommended as part of Of the protocol. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. We know a lot. We don't do a lot. Don't anybody go anywhere. We'll be right back. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Boulder, the fountain of truth, the fountain of truth about aging. And we have a, a few, uh, let's say, business details for you. Number one, we do a weekly newsletter. And I only do it for my listeners and my readers who give me their email address. It is always free, but only you get it. So there is no other way we do not advertise. If you will send me your email address by going to Adrian Berg, A-D-R-I-A-N-E-B-E-R-G, uh, and uh, that's at, at gmail.com. You can do that by email. You can go to my website, uh, adrianberg.com slash contact, and you'll be able to sign up for the newsletter, adrianberg.com slash contact, or you can go to our radio uh, website, which is generationboldradio.com. You'll see a place there where you can also sign up for the newsletter. Now, every week you will get uh, information on our podcasts, our blogs, 
and a lot of information that I just don't have any other place to disseminate to you. I call my hints and tips philosophies for successful aging. But in the blog, you will find, and it's called Aging for Beginners, several things that relate to this show today. One of them has to do with sleep, which you're going to hear about in a moment from our guest, uh, Dr. Uh, McLinden. And another one is clinical trials so that you can understand how the FDA, how the NIA and the NIH actually conduct trials. And another article uh, which incorporates an interview, an interview with two researchers at the NIA and exactly how they operate and how they work. But for today, I'm emphasizing something else, and that is behaviors, how our behaviors are preventative and curative. What I didn't realize until I actually interviewed Dr. Lori Ryan on our show a couple of weeks ago was how many of the trials that the National Institute on Aging is doing that have nothing to do with drugs. It has to do with Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive ability, but nothing to do with drugs. But it has to do with your diet, with your sleep, and, of course, with exercise. And I just challenged, I, I think this is probably a personal answer I'm going to get, but my, my guest today, uh, Dr. McLinden, oversees the non-pharmacological Alzheimer's disease and related dementias clinical trial portfolio. And there's a lot in that portfolio, a good 200 trials are going on. So Dr. McLinden, here's the elephant in the room for me. You're going to find out things. You're going to find out what's good to eat and, and exercise and whether aerobic is better than isogenics or whatever. Are we going to do anything about it? How how are you going to get the people who are still going into the fast food, you know, emporiums and maybe the fast food emporiums themselves to say, hey, this is just costing us too much money. The diabetes, inflammation, dementia is just causing us too much pain. Uh, is is there a disconnect here? I'm being very, very blunt. Is there a disconnect by what you're finding and how our public policy brings those messages out and our personal behaviors. Yeah, so there are a lot of moving parts here. I think one important piece of the puzzle is, of course, finding out what works and in whom. But you're right. If people don't engage in these healthy behaviors, it doesn't really mean anything and it won't have a positive impact on public health. And, you know, that's something that NIA is acutely aware of. And um, in our division of behavioral and social research, they're focused on exactly that issue. Um, right now, there's a there's a real focus on behavioral adherence and behavioral modification. And what are the things that you need to do and put in place to actually have people, you know, change their diet, choose to exercise, um, do a number of different healthy behaviors. And it's and it's lays the foundation and the bedrock for making all of these interventional trials really mean something in the end. You know, we have to see what motivates people. And if we can't get the motivation in there, um, really, you're, you're, the, the trials are great, but they're not going to have any more effect than a, a gym where you pay the you pay the fee and you never show up. Uh, we all know that the business model of a gym is counting on people not showing up after they, <laughs> after they pay. So, so I have to tell everybody, this is not a theoretical question for me in my life. Uh, when my dad died, I was 11 years old, and he was obviously very diabetic. He was obese. And when he did die, it was a cerebral hemorrhage and a heart attack, uh, immediate death. And I, I was 11, and I heard the doctor say something. The doctor actually said, 
This man killed himself with a knife and fork. Those are the, the actual words. Obviously staying with me forever. And we're doing it. We're all doing it. So I, I really care a lot about this translation. Translation in science means something different. But to me, it means translating the findings into the everyday activities of everyday people. And, yes. uh, and unless we focus on all of it, we haven't really done our job. So now we go to the point. Now, the pointer U.S., which I didn't know about. You, you're the one who introduced me. I want you to talk about it. That's pretty broad. It's got a lot of interesting things involved. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, it falls in the category that we call combination or multimodal lifestyle intervention. And, and rather than focusing on just exercise in isolation or diet, it's really focused on a lifestyle overhaul, if you will. Um, so the U.S. pointer is based on some work that was done in Finland. Uh, it was called the Finger Trial. And it, this was in a Nordic setting um, in Finland. But they found that um, this intervention, which was focused on changing, increasing exercise, changing diet, and a number of different factors, um, did appear to have a benefit on speed of processing uh, in terms of cognition. And so the idea is to take that, what was found in that trial, and and expand it out. And so the Alzheimer's Association is funding the U.S. pointer trial, and it's part of a worldwide fingers effort. And so the goal of it is to deploy this and tailor it to a number of different cultural settings, because, you know, a Nordic diet isn't necessarily going to work everywhere. So for the U.S. pointer trial, um, they're focused on a number of different lifestyle interventions, exercise, diet, and, um, and deploying it at a number of different sites. And so the Alzheimer's Association um, is the funder of the parent trial, but NIA is funding several key ancillary trials that will help us learn more about the effects of and benefits of multimodal lifestyle interventions. So for example, we're funding um, pointer imaging to learn more about what are the changes that happen in the brain in response to these lifestyle interventions, um, an ancillary focused on neurovascular health and function, as well as sleeping. So, you know, if you exercise more, does that improve your sleep? Does your diet have an impact on that? And um, and finally, effects on microbiome, so your gut bacteria. Yeah, so we've had a wonderful doctor from the head of uh, the aging research at Tufts University, uh, Dr. Michael Lustgarten, who's written a lot of books on microbiome. And uh, just it's, a, it's the healthy gut, basically. It's about having a good, healthy gut. So we do try to cover all these things. And funny enough, um, Dr. McLinden, this is not a science show. It's not a health show at all. It's just that when you have the gusto for life and you have a life purpose, you definitely want to be healthy so that you get those extra yeah. years. So before we leave, we want to protect it. Yeah, we want to protect it. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about something that I rarely talk about. You know, in the news today, there are protests, there's issues of Black Lives Matter, and we're not a political show. We don't deal with it at all. But in 2008, I wrote a book called How Not to Go Broke at 102. And I spent a whole page on um, issues of designer drugs and differences in black and white approaches to behavioral health and access to behavioral health. And I noticed, and I know, and, and, and because what I don't want to do is create longevity haves and have nots. So I looked at the trials and I saw that some of your non-pharmacological trials actually do deal with the differences uh, between different and diverse populations because there may be differences in what diverse populations have to do. 
And I'm kind of proud of that. And, and I want to talk about that when we come back in the context of science. So don't you guys go anywhere. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da, 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 da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate. Hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth About Aging. I actually have a big announcement. I'm going to be posting the announcement probably before this is aired, so I can't say you're the first ones who heard it, but it's the first time I'm saying it. I am now the director of an institute, and it's called the Catalyst Institute for the Prevention and Delaying of Age-Related Diseases. And what's interesting about this is I'm not a medical person, never was. Don't hold it against me, but I'm a lawyer. So what am I doing as the director? And I will tell you what it is, and I'm going to relate it right now to our discussion with our guest, Dr. McLinden, who oversees the non-pharmacological Alzheimer's disease and related dementia's clinical trials. And we're specifically uh, speaking about the the non-pharmacological or the non-drug-related trials, the things you can do every day in your life so that you are healthier in general, greater longevity, and also better uh, cognitively. Well, why am I picked by geroscientists for this? Because I opened my mouth and I said something, uh, Dr. McLinden, that I'm going to say to you, all right, which is this. You can make our lives longer, and you can even make our lives healthier. But if we don't have any place in society and we're not motivated to do what we need to do with our longevity, it's not going to work. So that there's a hand-in-hand interdisciplinary issue here, and that is how we behave and how passionate we are about our aging versus the fact that we're in an ageist society. So we have to bring all those disciplines together and break down those silos, and that's what the Institute plans to do. One of those silos, and we talked about this a little bit during the break, Dr. McLendon has been that there are haves and have-nots. There are people who can go do a Mediterranean diet, which isn't cheap. And there are people who have to go into a fast food store. But there's also differences scientifically uh, between diverse populations. We, we keep hearing about that with COVID and age and older adults. So that's demographics. Those are racial differences. So tell us about some of the non-pharmacological trials that you're doing. And I would imagine that you particularly want to attract volunteers also for some of those trials. I saw African dance. I saw, uh, uh, you know, the biology of folks in different races. I saw social dancing. So, so many things that you wouldn't think the NIA would be concentrating on for Alzheimer's diseases where you wouldn't put two and two together. So tell us about that. Right. Yeah. We have focused on a lot of different things. We're focused on um, culturally tailored approaches to lifestyle intervention, because as you say, um, you know, access among people is critically important, um, as well as making sure that they're culturally tailored and, um, and that people really see themselves and the researchers that are doing this type of work. So um, 
yeah, we have work that's focused on tribal dance, um, African dance, um, social dance as well. In, in general, we have um, work that's focused on social isolation. So doing um, Skype interventions to prevent loneliness and social isolation in general, as well as um, in diverse populations. Diversity is really uh, a hallmark concern and focus as we develop these trials to make sure that there's adequate representation because there could be differences culturally as well as differences among different racial ethnic groups and how they respond to these interventions. And this is nothing new. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. And before I, uh, I had to take a test, special test, you know, in order to get a marriage license a long time ago uh, for a disease that was particularly cultural. You have things like that that's going on. You have high blood pressure issues among different uh, groups. And so it's really important to know that I call it designer, that there is such a thing as designer health that should relate to you. Now, one of the things I did uh, notice is that you're very, very interested in getting volunteers for these trials. The, you know, it's one thing if you're working with a mouse, but it's another thing when it's a human being, they've got to come in and say, yes, they'll do it. Yes. So I do want everybody to know that if you do go on to the NIA website, they're very careful. In real English, you can actually understand what, what it says, exactly what the trials are like, what you're going to get yourself into. They talk about side effects. They talk about everything. But you tell people what you would like them to know about being volunteers. Yeah, so we would we would love you to get involved. Um we have trials that are running at all different um, stages of disease for all different groups of people, different ages. Um, so I really encourage you to take a look. Go to the NIA website where it's very plain language. Clinicaltrials.gov is um, a little bit less plain language, but it offers a really powerful tool to search geographically and find things in your area. But look at both of them and take a look at the, the trials that are out there. We desperately need your help. I, you know, Adrian highlighted the number of trials that NIA is supporting. And, you know, each of those need hundreds, if not thousands of people. And so to really move the needle forward, uh, we need people. And, and don't, don't think, oh, man, I'm completely healthy. I, I can't get involved. There's opportunities for everybody. And I encourage all of your listeners to take a look. Actually, a lot of the control groups are people who are totally healthy. So you need that. Yeah, yeah, you definitely need that too. So I wanted to ask you something, side effects, just on the same topic. So some people might say, you know, I, I, I would do it. It's kind of interesting stuff. Uh, I'd like to know and be help and be part of it, but I don't want any side effects. So side effects is actually one of the things you do study. Um, and uh, the keto diet, has, which my husband is, is on, it has a side effect, which is that I keep nagging him. So nagging is, is one of the side effects, I would say, of, in my half, you know, of the keto diet. But I'm not sure that's what you have in mind. So tell everybody what you mean and, and how you look at side effects. Yeah, I mean, even when you are dealing with non-pharmacological interventions, everything is going to have an impact on, on your life and is going to, you know, cause certain side effects you know, there's, there's benefits and drawbacks to everything. But, you know, one of the things that we're looking at with all of these lifestyle interventions is what is the impact on balance of, you know, engaging in these healthy behaviors while taking into account, you know, some of the drawbacks. And, you know, those drawbacks can affect people's implementation and whether or not they actually change their behavior. So it's important to pay attention to. Let me tell you, I was at one time what was called a cardiac cripple. 
I couldn't do anything. I would get tachycardia. I never had a heart attack, but I would get tachycardia even if I took a little walk. So now I'm a long-distance walker. I belong to something called free walkers. And we we actually are going to a social. We're going to walk separately and put our pictures on uh, Facebook uh, on Saturday, and we do thirty to fifty miles in a day. Thirty to fifty. Wow! Know. So that is so impressive. I went. And I got a stress. When I got a stress <laughs> test before COVID, just my regular stress test, and he said, "You know, um, you, you, you're terrific, but the heart doesn't go down as quickly as we would like. That you're like an out of shape." athlete. And I thought to myself, I don't care if he said you were like a dead athlete. The word athlete associated with my name was so amazing. Was oh, yes. so amazing. That would be that would be a lift I, for me know, personally. I great. He didn't know what I was. I was so happy. <laughs> so I'll tell you, you can change. This is what I'm bringing out. Yes. You can change. And these are the guys who are going to tell you the most efficacious thing you can do because there are so many things you can do. So we come back. Yeah. I, I noticed something, though, that I do want to talk about exercise. We come back in a minute. Uh, I did notice that a lot of your trials, and particularly the, we're talking here about Alzheimer's, we're talking about cognitive issues, had to do with aerobics as exercise as opposed to some of the things that I do, which is lifting and the walking and so on. So I, I, I'm going to ask you very pointedly when we come back, why, why that? There's got to be a reason that you think that's going to affect the aging brain or the brain in general. We'll be back with a little science in just a moment. Don't you go anywhere. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. da 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 And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bowl, the Fountain of Truth. I think we're in our fifth year now. We have at least 100 or more of those shows archived on generationboldradio.com. So you can access what we have here in many ways. One of them is simply going to that website, generationboldradio.com, and listening. We have a little description of every single show, so you know what we've got. We're setting up a brand new website, uh, which we will announce shortly. You can also go, if you're interested, in our conference, Metabesity 2020. Now, it's pretty Tony. Uh, I mean, we're hanging out with geroscientists and biohackers and all kinds of folks. But you might be very interested in, particularly because it's probably going to be virtual this year. It's usually in Washington, D.C. But take a look at metabesity2020.com. And you can express interest free of charge in attending. There's a little uh, place that, that you can do that. And it'll go right to me. And I will put you in our list of people who are going to get the information about the conference. And we have just formed the Catalyst Institute to delay and prevent issues and uh, diseases of aging. We're taking a moonshot. We're hoping to get healthier longevity in a climate that's very culturally engaging for the older adult within the next 10 years. So a lot of stuff are going on here. We're moving that needle. And if you are, simply want to know how to sleep better or eat better or have a funny story, a lot of my stories are pretty funny, like about my Uncle Julie, the black sheep of the family, um, you can simply look at my blog, which is Aging for Beginners. 
So right now we're we're incredibly rushing through our show. I have to tell you, because uh, Dr. Uh, McLinden, who is working on the non-pharmacological areas of Alzheimer's with the National Institute of Aging, really has a lot to impart. She she at this epicenter of what I think is going to explode, and that is simply better health habits for everybody and everyone. So one of the things that, that we were talking about, um, Dr. McLinden, is the, you know, this issue here of picking and choosing that you guys have to do, and the FDA too, in funding s- these trials. I mean, there were 200 of them, but you, theoretically there could be 2,000 of them. And I noticed with aerobics that uh, is, is, is a pinpoint that you're looking at as opposed to my style of exercise, which is a lot of walking and a lot of lifting. Not that I don't do tra- treadmill, but it's, it's less aerobic. So why is that? Are you seeing something scientific in its effect on the aging brain or on the brain in general? Why aerobics so many those trials? Yeah, certainly the bulk of the exercise trials are focused on aerobics. Um, we do have some that are focused on Tai Chi, so physical activity, mindfulness, which is a little bit less um, aerobics oriented. But in general, yes, the work is focused on aerobics. And I think a lot of that stems from what we know that what's good for the heart is good for the brain. And so, um, you know, aerobics has such a clear cardiovascular impact that it seems like a logical choice to pursue in terms of an exercise target and the beneficial effects that could have on the brain. Um, But I I admit, I personally, I I lift as well. And it's something I would like to see more representation of. I think it would be exciting to have, um, to have other topics and other focuses of exercise really be represented because, um, Personally, I think that there's some value there, but right now we don't have a trial focused on it. But I think aerobics is so clearly cuts to the heart healthiness that um, it makes a lot of sense to pursue. And, you know, one of the other things that they are fascinating, I'd like to actually devote a whole show to this. You do have uh, technology tests. You are looking at, I call it age tech uh, tests and how those help. And there you also have a lot of that with caregivers. Uh, because there are 65 tests on stress reduction and other issues if somebody's a caregiver. It's a big thing. Remember that, that, that the NIA is not about Alzheimer's, but it does a lot of work in Alzheimer's because it's the most devastating of all the age-related diseases right now. Um, and when they, you get a handle on it, they'll move on. But part of that is the caregiving stress. So tell us a little bit about that because I think it will surprise the listeners. Yes. So caregiver stress is obviously a huge concern and, and a focus of NIA. So in the Division of Behavioral and Social Research, they're really focused on the caregiver, supporting the caregiver, the dyadic, the, the relationship between the person with dementia and the caregiver and ways that that can be improved upon. Um, some of the things that are in in my portfolio are focused on improving agitation Um Severe agitation is something that happens in the later stage of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, and it's it's really devastating whether you're in a long-term care facility or you're being cared for by loved ones. And um, and and so, in addition to being focused on the person with dementia, we're also focused on how do these interventions impact the caregiver and improve the caregiver's sense of well-being and quality of life and some of the symptoms that come with that 
as well as burnout. Yeah, you see what what I see because uh, because I'm a journalist is these things from this bird's eye view. One of the biggest problems that folks have in the industry, in the senior living industry, is personnel. People burn out. These uh, there's the family caregiver who's terribly burdened, and then there's the professional caregiver, and how they cope with the agitation of uh, of their loved ones or the ones they care for is directly proportional to how many people will go in the field. So I I I see I see so many connections that uh, just simply because I have this privilege of sitting in by a microphone and talking to everybody who's in the field one way or another, it's just amazing. So now I'll, I'll ask you this. We've had Dr. Lori Ryan. We've had, uh, uh, I've interviewed many NIA people. We've had NIA folks over, and NIH, Dr. Hodes was one of our keynoters last year at the conference. Um, and I don't know if they're talking to each other. You know, I'm pretty blunt here. It's the fountain of truth about aging. Uh, I, Dr. Ryan is working on drugs. You're working on on non-pharmaceuticals. One person is worried about funding. How do you relate? This is a big organization. This is not, you know, you're all in three little rooms. Because, because the person who's getting the drugs is also the person who has to be doing the exercise. And the physician who's giving prescriptions could be giving prescriptions of, on lifestyle and also drugs. But really, honestly, I think we see our drug taking and our medical health separate from our behavioral health right now. I think as a culture, we don't put them together. And, and maybe Eastern cultures do. Does the NIA put it together? We do. And, you know, we're we're different groups with different focuses, but we all have one mission and we're all working together in this. And yeah, there does seem to be a siloing between drugs and, and non-pharmacological approaches, but that is something that NIA is actively working to bridge and ensuring that public health messaging, not just about pharmaceuticals, but also other approaches can be disseminated broadly into primary care settings and into the community. Um, and and as evidence of the overlap there, you know, we even have some trials that are focused on combination approaches. So they're looking at drugs and lifestyle together, hand in hand. Um, we have one trial from uh, Rong Zhang at UT Southwestern. Um, it's a multi-site trial, and they're looking at the effects of uh, pharmacological therapy in terms of intensive vascular risk reduction with statins and uh, antihypertensives, things to modify blood pressure, and looking at that alongside exercise and those in isolation, so the, the the drugs, the exercise, and the drugs and exercise together to really see, you know, where can we put these things together and get the biggest bang for our buck health-wise. Well, I'm going to end the show the way I always do. It is our responsibility. Uh, and if we have responsibilities in this world, if we don't simply retire and think of retirement as enforced leisure, which I like too, but not 100% of the time, we um, will do the things that are coming out of the NIA. We'll embrace it. We'll be part of their trials and their programs. We'll make it happen. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. It's a vast task. Uh, I just didn't even have time to go through your whole bio, Dr. McLinden, because it's a short show. If I told people, if I told people <laughs> your credentials, we would be ready. Be we'd still be talking your credentials. So thank you so much for being here. And I'm going to say to everybody else. As I always say, get out there, kids, or if we're still sequestered, stay in there, kids. 
and make it happen. I need an appropriate.